0: This episode of Ship Show is sponsored by PagerDuty. PagerDuty eliminates the noise, chaos, and manual processes across the entire incident lifecycle. PagerDuty helps you see by giving you visibility across your entire application stack, act so you can get the right person or team to address each problem, resolve the issue to fix problems before your customers even notice, analyze the incident to spot trends and help you understand the stress on both your teams and your systems, and prevent incidents by helping you make proactive fixes to reach your organization's uptime goals. PagerDuty is trusted by companies like Etsy, Nike, and GitHub. ShipShow listeners can start their own special free 30-day trial by going to www.pagerduty.com. Slash the ship show. What is your one purpose in life?
1: What is your one purpose in life?
0: What is your one purpose in
1: life? To ship, ship
2: of course
0: build engineering devops release management and everything in between it's time for the ship show i'm your host paul reed sober build Eng- on twitter and it's soberbuildengineer.com who is with me on this uh i guess it's after labor day so it's a, it is now officially a fall evening ej cerimella e
1: cerimella e. on twitter and this is yusuf at uh, build scientist on twitter how how are my og homies oh my god yeah you mean og or old school both OG, oh, gee,
3: yeah, yeah. I was gonna say, like, yeah. When I saw that everyone sort of was unable to attend tonight, I was gonna say, yeah, it's and then there were three. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nobody's quit. It's just we have a nice rotation and the ability to uh, load balance between co-hosts.
0: Yes, the the ship show has load balance.
3: You are you, Paul is he is the ELB, <laughs> is the elastic load balancer of the ship show. How's yes. Everybody. How's
0: everyone doing? Awesome. Good. How are you doing? I am doing relatively well. I'm very busy lately doing... Like, lots of travel and things, so it's it's been fun, but also exhausting. I've been, like, out of town for the last couple of weeks, and so I'm back, and, like, all my friends have
3: forgotten who I am. Yeah, how about you? I've been sifting through resume after resume. and. I have a, are you guys looking for new peeps? Yeah, we are hiring. We're looking for Cambridge and Belfast, so nice. if uh, you're interested in some of the stuff we talk about on the show, please get a hold of me. Shoot me a DM on Twitter, or get my attention, and chat. Yes, tweet EJ if you want to do... Uh, Devopsy things with him.
0: Yusuf, how's the QE gig going?
1: It's going awesome. Good. Um Yeah, I, I got a couple blog posts I got to make. My blog is uh, superbly old, but uh, got <laughs> some good stuff um, coming up. Yeah. Good. Good, good,
0: good. Well, for episode 48, we are live, well, we were live at FlowCon last week, talking with the, the program committee there about uh, the event and what happened. It was the second year of FlowCon, um, and we will get to that uh, right after News & views. So first up this evening, some Chef news. There is one Chef server, and it is open source. This was a big announcement earlier this week. Yusuf, you uh, were commenting about it earlier.
1: Yeah, yeah, this is definitely a big move on, uh, on Chef's part. I mean, so... People, uh, in case you didn't know, Chef had the enterprise kind of uh, edition, and then they had the kind of community uh, edition. And uh, the enterprise edition had a couple more features, like multi-tenancy, more than a couple more features, but um, you know, a lot, lot of enterprisey type features. And I guess. Chef has decided to merge uh, all those into just one edition of Chef. So um, you got a lot of those uh, enterprise-y uh, features uh, for free. Yeah, that's good news.
0: Looking at the uh, picture, looks looks like they are basically uh, kind of doing. I guess is it kind of in ish Like some of the will be sort of plugins that are little extras or something now. Or
1: I, I think what they're doing is it looks like that they're starting to branch out into like analytics and some tooling around Chef. Um, and it sounds like they're going to start charging for stuff that's sort of um, ancillary to Chef, gotcha. so, okay. which which makes sense. I mean, a lot of people write their own custom tools around Chef, or you, you can go to Chef and buy them.
0: Right. So it sounds like the approach they're taking is make the, the server itself as robust and powerful as possible, and then APIs that uh, anybody could use, but then do services around the APIs. So it sounds like a good move. Yep. Well, next up, we have Google announcing, uh, you know, we talk a lot on the show about SSL certificates and SSL fails. Uh, Google announcing that they will be deprecating SHA one. SHA one is apparently becoming dangerously weak. We'll link to a couple mm-hmm. of posts on these details, and they say everyone should upgrade to SHA two. But there was a little bit of sort of back and forth about this costs money. Yusuf, you? Uh,
1: yeah, a lot, a lot, a lot of talk on the Twitter sphere about this. Um, a couple of companies saying you know having to to reissue uh, certificates are, are costly, and SHA one isn't as weak as people say that it is, and we've still got some time apparently. There's still time. Yeah, I mean, apparently we have until 2017, 2018, until I guess pretty much all the SHA 1 hashes are reversible, I guess. So. Uh, yeah, I'm not a crypto guru, so I don't know how true that is. But
3: yeah, It wasn't in this particular article, but there was another article I was sent and linked to it in the podcast show notes, but there are three known exploits for SHA-1, and the names of the three escape me. You're going to have to check the show notes, or we can post later, but yeah, it, it makes sense to me.
0: Well, I think the problem is, and they're pointing this out, that the lead time to change this stuff is so long. I mean, it's how many Heartbleed was like a quote-unquote emergency and a big deal, and it's how many Many months, and we're, you know they still find servers with it. So I think that's sort of what they're trying to preempt. The, the cost argument does not make a lot of sense to me. I mean, they—if you put in the aggregate for identity theft uh, of big sites, you know, uh, randomly. I mean, Home Depot was in the news having a big problem with uh, credit card stuff being stolen. And what's the cost of that? And I think a lot of companies are just like, eh. I mean, it, it, I don't know. I, I find that argument very not compelling. The other interesting thing I I thought I'd point out is Git isn't Git all shawunned up. What does this mean for a beloved Git? I don't know. I thought Git was perfect. Oh. Yeah. I guess Git's not perfect. I know but,
3: I'm gonna. You're just getting <laughs> the target on your own I,
0: back, I, dude. I, I know I'm gonna get. I know I'm gonna get a lot of flack for that. Speaking of Git, Littis Torvalds came out opening his mouth, as he often is known for doing and saying various things that are interesting. Uh, He says binary packages are terrible, and Valve, of all people, might save the desktop. Uh, Yusuf, you pointed us at this. I think you kind of jokingly asked, has he not heard of FPM?
1: Yeah, yeah, because apparently he only packages binaries for Windows and, and Mac OS X which I find very odd, but whatever. I mean, he's obviously never heard of tools like FPM, or maybe he has, and he just doesn't crock Ruby, or he doesn't, well, I'm sure he does. Well, I think, I mean, so,
0: as someone who has had to support Linux binaries, on multiple Linux platforms, I can totally understand what he's getting at. Like, he's like, if you're trying to build any complex application, have it run on like CentOS and even Ubuntu. Those two platforms are just a pain in the butt to support with binary packages. But I think he's pointing out like, I, I want to do one package and have it work on all of those systems, which is a good idea for certain things. In fact, I've I've had projects with clients where that's what they hire me to do. Is like, we want one package to work on like all the systems, and you can actually tell companies that have put effort. Into doing that, you you see that actually like with the VMware workstation for Linux, they put a lot of effort into that. Skype is another one; they have like one Linux package. But for the rest of the software, people compile it for each distro, and it's not a big deal. I mean, this is I don't know. This is one of those things where the it just the stuff that he says just makes no sense to me. And and it's not like, I mean, I was using Linux in 98, so it's not like I'm just new to the Linux and have a different perspective. I just, I, I don't get what he's saying. And the other bit about Valve, Valve is going to fix it. It reminds me of that XKCD cartoon. He's talking about Valve is going to introduce a new standard that will fix it all. It's like, yes, great. If we have 14 standards, creating another one will solve the problem, obviously. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I found that whole Valve comment to be a little rather comical. Yeah,
0: I don't know. The best part is the photo they have of him, I recognize it. It's from when he flipped NVIDIA off. (laughs) um, And that's now the file photo for Linus Torvalds because, you know, every article is about him being an in some new way. <laughs> uh, last up tonight, we have an article a couple, well, about a month old now. EJ, you pointed us at this, the continuous delivery and other bad ideas. you talking about pinning the target on people's backs. we mm-hmm. will uh, link it to it in the show notes. It was from CM Crossroads. Uh, Bob a short article, basically describing problems with continuous delivery. Uh, we will obviously link to it in the show notes. He ends the article with, what's your opinion? What is your opinion?
3: Uh, I think continuous delivery is... I, I think earlier we were discussing, I, I said sort of like skinny jeans. Like If it fits you, it fits you, and it works. Um, if you can't do it or need breaks in that conveyor belt, then put them in and don't feel bad about it. Well, I, you
0: know, I, I read this article, and honestly, it reads to me like... I have two reactions. The first one is it, it doesn't sound like it understands what, what continuous delivery is, really, I mean, one of the best quotes, uh, and I'm going to paraphrase it, but one of the best quotes about continuous delivery actually was Damon Edwards, and he was saying, you know, continuous delivery is not you release every change. It is that you are able to release every change. And so he talks about you can do this semi-automated deployment, and, like, that is the problem. That is precisely the problem. Is this sort of worse? It's semi-automated, but not actually automated. And if you have that attitude where that's okay, then that's when you get into six or twelve months later you find out the automated step is actually somebody with a wiki page because we didn't have the time to fully automate it. I mean, he gets hung up on the button like the one push button. It's not about one button click. I, I I I I
3: was thinking more in terms of like in AWS land, there's a lot of talk about canary nodes. And so at the end of your conveyor belt, you click build or whatever and pops out an AMI and you bring up a canary node and this is all automated, but between the AMI being ready and the AMI deployed, sometimes there's a disconnect if you know that there is system stress or something else that you shouldn't have something deployed right then and there or even be worrying about a canary node of that given system. So I can understand some of the disconnect, but uh, there are a couple of things in here like the ending of the second paragraph, like so, so often do you really need to deploy your code? Yeah, I think that's supposed to say how often do you really need to deploy your code? But as often as we like, as often as we need, nearly interrupt but yeah, it just, and also like, you don't have to deploy every change, but being able to deploy every change. Part of the CD world is there is a quality assurance step or a quality engineering step in there, which makes sure that, you know, when it pops out at the end, it's actually been validated and it's okay to deploy. Or once it is deployed, there's metrics being gathered and alerting happening to say the health of that service. So, all the time, and I feel like in in some cases some of the services we take for granted, you know, you can give the Netflix or the Etsy or the whatever example, but the reason why they got a leg up on everybody and, and the reason why they're crushing the competition is because they were able to move so fast. They were able to get stuff A-B tested and canary noted, whatever you want to call it, in like a live fire exercise and see it with production data and then throw it out into the wild.
0: Yeah, the thing that when I read this, it's one of those things where, I mean not this article specifically but I I was um, listening to a talk recently and you know the the speaker was talking about release engineering and the role of release engineering and and the word best practices was repeated over and over again. And one of the slides said something about the role of release engineers is to enforce best practice. And my thought was like, this is why nobody gives a shit what you think. like <laughs> it's true. like you are on the losing, the industry has decided, Enforcing best practice when it comes to release engineering, like no one cares. That ship sailed. If they they ever cared, they don't care. And so this, this, the problem is when I read something like this. That's like the way I read this is not every organization wants to deploy every commit. And that is totally true. But I think when you get into a model where it's like, oh, we don't really have to automate that semi-automated is okay. Yeah, no. Then you get into That's, this, uh... well, maybe I didn't have time to automate it at all, so I just threw it on a wiki page. And then you, if everybody does that at one step, because you've got someone's got to be there to press enter anyway, so maybe I could just type an argument to this command instead of having an API to figure that out or whatever. The slippery slope argument is is a slippery slope in and of itself, but it's like it means you don't understand the mindset about what continuous delivery really is about. Um, and it's funny because he talks about it's continuous delivery, but then he's actually talking about automating deployments. So there's kind of like a disconnect there. I I, I don't know. Maybe maybe this is just fascinating to me because I'm actually speaking it at last.ing summit this week on continuous delivery. So I have all these ideas like bouncing around my head for the talk. So it's just like no, this is not the thing. So uh,
1: you know, I think it's I think everybody you know is entitled to their to their opinion. But I think Bob misses the essence of
3: continuous delivery. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So. Well, Wait, uh, what is the essence of continuous delivery then? Am I missing the boat? It's what I said, which is what, quoting Damon. It's that
0: it's, continuous delivery is not about delivering every single commit. It's about actually the way, to paraphrase Lucis on Twitter, it's about giving a sh- about release engineering and QA in a way that your company never has in its entire history. That's what it's about. And so this whole thing where you're like, well, we don't really have to give a crap about how our code gets out to production because there's some guy's life we can just ruin all the time every weekend doing that. (laughs) Seriously, that's a non-starter for continuous delivery. Or, hey, we don't have to automate that. Let's throw it on a wiki page and some can sit there hating their life typing it like that's not acceptable in okay. sort of this viewpoint and so Fair that enough. is the, that is the essence giving you shit about release engineering and quality in a way that you have never before and not it's not lip service like you actually have
3: to care. It's right? part of your conveyor belt before yes. it gets to... Yes. All right.
0: So on that note, I'm very excited now. Next up, you're actually... I, it's actually funny. We're talking about Flocon. And, and that conference is actually not only about continuous delivery, but the slogan, I believe, is uh, continuous data design and delivery. So bringing that concept to your entire organization. So uh, we're having a chat with actually Jez Humble, Esther Derby, and John Esser next up on the ship show. Welcome back to The Ship Show. I'm your host, Paul Reed, and we are here live at FlowCon 2.0 with the program committee, Esther Derby, John Esser, and Jess Humble. Welcome to The Ship Show. Thank you very Thank much. You. Thanks. So we covered FlowCon 1.0. Are you calling it 1.0, 2.0? <laughs> I think
4: we're using year names.
0: Year names, yeah. All right, so we covered FlowCon 2013 yes. in episode 30, and it's it's hard to believe it's been a year, but here we are. And so one thing I noticed that was interesting to me about this year's conference is that it had a different vibe i felt than last year's did you pick up on that at all did you Try to do that when you were putting the program together, or was that just me? Am I the only one that? And specifically the vibe, by the way. So uh, we were talking about this, Esther, mm-hmm. earlier about how 1.0 had a lot of the theory about flow and a lot of the sort of broad topics because it wasn't. It was a you know it was a new conference. It wasn't something that a lot of people were talking about it, but they didn't have kind of an experience. So it was more sort of learning a lot, like conceptually. And then this year's program had that. Had a lot of of talks that we'll get to those in a sec, but also had like practices and actual things that you could do to help get into flow. So it just felt like there was a lot of actionable stuff this year, and that seemed kind of different. Was that just me noticing that, or did you architect it that way?
4: I think we always try and get a mix of, of both. I, I'm actually surprised that you think that there will, there's more practical stuff this year. I mean, we, we, we try and balance the two. So we try and have practical stuff, we try and have uh, stuff that's theoretical, and there's a, a whole bunch of different axes that we try and use to, to balance the program. But, you know, I'm definitely happy that you felt there was practical stuff, because we do intend that to be the case.
0: See, you know, it's funny. I think what it was is I always, you know, I'm my background's release engineering. I'm like the old only release engineer in the room, right? And there was a whole talk on release engineering. So I was like, release engineering represent, you know, maybe that's what it was. But, but yeah, it was, I think this year, again, another great combination of just practical stuff, but then also a lot of theory that is useful to learn about kind of how to bring uh, the concept of flow to your company and organization.
4: Yeah, and we, you know, we we try and mix. I mean, so Don Reinertsen is probably at one end of the spectrum where you need to have like reasonably advanced math in order to understand anything that he's saying, <laughs> uh, versus talks which are very kind of deep dive, practical kind of uh, stuff on the ground. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking um, Lee Honeywell's talk on security at Heroku was a great example of one that was kind of very practical and focused on things you can do in real yeah. life.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the things we should mention before we start talking
4: about all the keynotes and the, and the talks is they will be online. That's right. So one of the principles that we follow is open information. So we've recorded all the talks. Flow the of keynotes. information. Imagine that. I know. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> so we've recorded everything. It'll be available for free online. If you follow the Twitter account, Flocon SF. Uh, we'll tweet it uh, when it all comes out. Expect it about a month from now. Awesome,
0: and we'll put that in the show notes. Perfect. So I wanted to start with the, the opening keynotes. Marty Kagan spoke about continuous innovation. That was actually, I think, a, a theme, this idea of innovation, and then, of course, obviously, FlowCon continuity. But this idea around innovation was, I think, the whole conference it was a good keynote to start the day with.
5: Well, I was going to say, I, I told all people I talked to that that talk right there pretty much paid for the conference and anything after that was was a bonus it Was gravy uh, but I, I don't know how you could have set up I mean we certainly didn't plan it this way but the whole keynote track was just right in line just one built on top of another and um, I, I don't know. I, I couldn't have asked for anything better as far as the keynotes. Yeah.
6: Yeah, I really enjoyed Marty Kagan's talk. I thought that distinction was really an important one to make, and I see a lot of people who are, particularly in the Agile world, who are really going the way of IT thinking versus product thinking. Um, And
4: and that that was his distinction.
6: Yeah, yeah, that's his distinction. I thought that was very interesting. But going back to the idea about theory versus practical I think it's important to have a mix because if you only have the practices, then people can only apply them by rote. And they don't understand the theory underpinning them, and it or why, or why they're doing it. Right. You know, what's the conceptual model about it? And if you're if you're going to adapt things to your own situation and your own unique context, you have to have that background of theory in order to think about what makes sense in our context, mm. rather than just oh, this practice worked somewhere. I'll right. try best it here. Best
0: practices. Yeah. yeah. Back to that kind of idea that I was saying. In, in a, you know this idea of innovation kind of mm-hmm. permeated a lot of the lean vocabulary. You can't actually talk about it in your organization if you don't know the language. So a lot of the theory stuff was was, was sort of um, very good at introducing. A lot of the concepts of flow and lean stuff across the spectrum I mean there's lean, there was lean IT there was user experience people uh, in that space
4: uh, here. Ben Rockwood I thought did a great I mean his talk was a fabulous kind of synthesis of all of the fundamental concepts in, in lean and agile uh, in a way that can kind across of the whole value stream from UX all the way to operations.
0: Yeah so so he was uh, the closing keynote I, his what was it it was something like 14 points and when he was, it was a very good kind of review and it, it kind of tied a bow on the whole conference. Mm-hmm. It was really nice. And the way that he did it was like, bam, 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 bam. Yeah, so it's one of those things where, when you're watching it, it was kind of, uh, for me, picking out the things that he was summarizing, and then kind of, oh yeah, I remember in that talk or in that keynote that that really just accentuated the whole day. I really liked that. Mm-hmm. So back to uh, the keynote after Marty, a Mary Poppendieck her keynote on uh, the Lean Mindset. Also very interesting and, and sort of I think good at sort of introducing the shift in thinking.
4: Yeah, and you know, she's always great quality. Uh, She consistently says provocative and interesting things and draws from, you know, which I think is great uh, and very important in our field, draws from this very wide range of research and case studies and stuff that happens in a bunch of different fields and pulls it together and uses it to illustrate a lot of the stuff that still, and we were talking about this earlier, Esther, you know, after decades of people talking about, actually, the problems with uh, fundamental models of management and how wildly inappropriate they are, Uh, you know, she she shines a really great light on that.
6: Mm. Yeah, I was really glad to see, to hear someone else talking about engagement and how having engaged employees is really critical to anybody's success, because I think there's a certain danger that people take the technical aspects of lean or the technical aspects of flow and forget that... You know if you are creating an environment for your employees that prohibits engagement or squashes it quashes it then the gains you the potential gains from these ap- applying lean or applying flow ideas isn't going to bear fruit right and I, I go into many many organizations where People decry the lack of engagement, but when when you ask them what sorts of jobs people are asked to do, it's like, well, who would be engaged?
2: Right, right. You know, you've
6: designed a system that is perfectly, perfectly suited to make people alienated from their from their work.
0: Disengage, so,
6: disengage. There, yeah. So yeah, I, yeah, I was so. I was really pleased to see someone else talking about that.
4: And that was something that we saw in the State of DevOps report this year that actually job satisfaction is the biggest predictor of organizational performance, uh, and people. Know, it's, it's a lot of the, the, the people who have researched this space will tell you that. you know It's employees first, customers second, and you know, yes. shareholders third.
6: And yet many managers still think their job is to get people to work hard.
5: Yeah.
6: And it's going about it uh, from the wrong direction.
5: I, I really appreciated Mary's uh, keynote. I, I thought it was very astute of her to... Uh, I mean, she started right out by saying, this crowd is probably the material I normally go with, is probably... Um, that's kind of old hat. And she kind of went for some new, new thinking and some new uh, ideas that she had been toying around with. And I really liked how she tied um, her whole kind of lean analytics uh, into what Clayton Christensen had brought out in a recent HBR article about kind of the fundamental problems with management today. Um, you know, and the whole kind of the spreadsheet and the ROI and, the, and those ratios. So anyway, I think she just did a great job of pulling together and proposing. I don't think the model she necessarily proposed will be the one that we necessarily stick with, but she but she gave us some really good ideas to kind of think about and talk about. Um, explore, going forward yeah. And explore. And yeah,
0: explore. Yeah, it's a not to harp on it, but that is exactly the kind of vibe difference between I think last year and this year. And maybe I wasn't saying it right with sort of practical versus theory or whatever. But sort of this idea that last year's was like a lot of, I I was new to all of this, so a lot of it was an introduction and and it was sort of like a, it was almost like a seminar course last year, which is good because it was a new thing. And then this year, though, you have exactly that. You have people coming back, they're exploring those ideas with each other at the conference, they're kind of batting around kind of new things. And that's fascinating to be a part of that and have, in terms of like lean stuff, watch that unfold in the hallway spaces and stuff
6: one of the conversations we had over and over again in the program committee as we were putting all the talks together and thinking about who who would be a great person to have and you came out, you were the one who first used this term i think was do we have horses or unicorns
0: <laughs> and
4: that's actually yeah. a guy called chris little oh yeah um, and yeah. then Jean Jean came and talks about this a lot
6: yeah yeah. Well, I, and that that did permeate our conversations. You know, is yep. this a horse or unicorn? So is it theory, or somebody's actually out there, right? Right. And then there's the whole the whole thing. It's yeah, an interesting
0: mix. Yeah, and then there's the whole thing about unicorns are just trained horses. I've heard that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can kind of take that analogy to it.
4: Yeah. And, that, and then the other the other axis is like experienced versus less experienced people. So one of the things we try and do is mix you know people who are established and known mm-hmm. to be awesome versus uh, a group of people who perhaps haven't done much public speaking before uh, and so we try and balance the program that way as well mm-hmm. yeah. you know we have some speakers who we invite and some who come through the rfp process you know my personal feeling was that we didn't set out to do anything different this time you know it's kind of just the luck of the draw that you know it, it created the impression that it did or maybe it's the
0: state i mean a lot of these conversations are, have been more prevalent in our industry yeah. so maybe it's the the tenor of the audience and how they approach it it's just because they, they're talking more about it yeah. These fascinating ideas.
4: I mean, basically, my, my selection process for the, for the invited speakers is, like, I just send the emails to the people I would really love to see speak, <laughs> and I hope that they say yes. And in, in many cases, they did. So that was great.
0: Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I wanted to go back. One thing I, I thought was interesting, we were talking about employee engagement, and I've heard this concept before, and just to go back to, to Ben's talk at the end, you know, the, the title of that keynote was uh, Feng Shui in the, the Modern Business World. A lot of times, I think, when we talk about lean and about flow, we forget, and he, he called this out, that it's really about being humane to, like, uh, to other humans. And we have programmers all the time talk about being in flow when they're coding. And that's not, you know, that's not really, that's not like a business thing per se, but it's sort of like... You know, when you think about it in that context and think about it in sort of a smaller chunk, like the flow of your day, or the flow of the work that you're doing, you see talking about that too, and, and you know, are we killing people with tons of meetings or interruptions and that sort of thing, and then saying, oh, why aren't you getting your work done? You see that in a lot of organizations where it's just, and so that's an interesting sort of facet that we, I think also got explored at the conference.
4: Yeah, and I think that the, the focus on, like, people is the thing that I think is is really at the core of, mm-hmm. of, uh, of what we're trying to trying to do here because uh, it's you know people always talk about culture and the role of culture and people think that's really fluffy and it's absolutely not fluffy there's lots of hard data and science analysis that's been done on culture and organizational performance uh, there's and, a whole thing called anthropology yeah it turns out <laughs> yeah <laughs> so you know that's important and you know we, we cover the whole gamut but i think that's really at the core of of what we're trying to do with the conference the one
0: keynote that we haven't covered yet was Whitney Johnson's uh, "Disrupt Yourself," and again, innovation begins on the uh, inside. That the, that idea of innovation, I loved that talk. I
6: loved that talk.
0: Too. Um, yeah, the, the, this concept of sort of the S curves and and how I think, and then jumping from sort of curve to curve. And it's funny because. She was using a lot of language that you would think... I mean, you know, and her background is in, like, VC and finance and stuff. So, b- like, business language. But that's... She was talking about you and as in an individual jumping from these curves to curves. Well,
6: um, she it, has jumped that curve. She yeah. Her background is music. Yeah. Her education is in music. So w- she made a big jump to go to be an equity analyst. Yeah,
0: yeah. and it was, it was inspirational to hear her just talk about actually... The mechanics of doing that and sort of what... Because there's a lot of, I think, fear. And she talks about that, like jumping from one to another. And and she was kind of making the point, it's like, if you get to the top of of that that S-curve and the top of whatever that game is, right the top of your game, and then you have to do a a jump, it's like, well, you can either sort of stagnate at the top of that curve, which is actually scary, but it doesn't always kind of scare us because it's sort of in the background. Or you can, like, make that leap to a new curve And scare yourself that way, but the outcome is probably going to be, you know, better and more at least more interesting.
5: I I thought she characterized it in a very, in a model in a way that that was, you know, easy to understand. People can apply it. You know, really, they can walk out of there and they can take that concept with them, and they can actually think about how to apply that when they walk out of there. Um, her, Her background isn't technical. You know she's not a technical person but I thought she was also very adept at bringing in some technical examples and, and kind of pulling that into our industry as well I, I just it, it, it was it was the keynote that was kind of it was different than all the other keynotes in the sense that um, you could at least I felt after the keynote it was one of those ones that I don't think people were expecting that kind of a keynote right at the conference it just it, it, it has a different vibe and a different flavor. Um and I think people were like, Okay, I you know, this was something different that I pro- they probably did not expect to hear mm-hmm. at the conference. From
0: an audience standpoint, what I noticed was I felt like at the end of that talk there was a lot of energy in yeah. the audience. There's a lot of like you know, and it it's in the title, Disrupt Yourself, right? There's kind of like people are like, These are concrete steps so that I can actually go do that. And and again, you know, it's interesting a lot of the points she brought up, we were talking about being humane to, to people, there this bit about battling. She she brought up the battling entitlement and and putting failure in its place. A lot of these things that are really just sort of uh, talking about humane concepts, and in in some weird way, it's actually how to be humane to yourself, like make it okay for yourself to fail. Well,
5: the fact of the matter is, is that, and I think she's she brought this out. It, you can't you can't expect the systems or the or the people you interact with to always behave that way. Yeah. So. Ultimately, you you have to take responsibility, and you have to fight against the entitlement, and you have to you have to create opportunity for yourself. Yeah. Ultimately. Right? Yeah,
0: so. you're right. It was, it, it was one of those keynotes that that uh, at the beginning you weren't sure if it like where it was going, and then at the end it totally made sense and to, totally fit in with the the program and the message. Yeah, um, and then of course the talks during the day. It was funny at lunch, I was sitting down and, with people and I was asking, you know, which, which one are you going to go to? I, I don't think I actually talked to anyone who said it was an easy decision which talk to go to there were so many talks that were like I, I can't decide that one or that one in fact i a couple people that i, I know attended and we were like okay you, you go to that one i'll go to this one and then we'll debrief after yeah, it was
5: hard well absolutely and so being on the program committee I, I was talking to a few people and they they came to me specifically and they said this format is really an ideal format the fact that you have a one-day conference we're not going to be here for a week. Jam you packed. have jam-packed this with high quality. Yes, it's very difficult for me to choose, but you know this is perfect for me. It's, it's it's not a lot of time. I'm not wasting time. I know that every session I go to, I'm going to get something out of it. Yeah. So that was the objective. And I think um, you know when we first started FlowCon, I was a little concerned that we weren't having a longer conference. I thought, why would people come for just a day? I think we've shown that when you offer a high-quality program, people will come. Yeah,
4: and in fact, this year we have a second day, but it's, yes, it's it's workshops and open space. And uh, the open space thing, I think, is really interesting because it's a chance for people to actually talk about how they're going to take these ideas yeah. and, and implement them in real life. And this is this is something that Esther is running this year.
6: Yes, I well, I, I I agree that that having it after the conference rather than in parallel with the conference supports just that idea that it's a place for people to synthesize. It's a place for people to say, This is how I think this will fit where I work. What are you thinking about? And and those conversations deepen their understanding and help help ground it more firmly so that they have a better chance of implementing some of these ideas when they when they get back to their own place of work. And they may also develop some deeper connections with people so that when they get back they can call up and say, Hey, I tried this and this is what happened.
0: It's your your kind yeah. of leaner flow buddy.
6: <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I think that putting it after the conference is very powerful in that way.
0: Yeah, and it, I think it allows, uh, you're talking about synthesis, it allows people to, to really be focused on the content the first day, mm-hmm. and then have that decompression kind of mm-hmm. the second day. Mm-hmm. Um, the one thing you mentioned, too, in addition to the open spaces, there are, are some workshops from some of the speakers, mm-hmm. and the great thing about that was like if you one of the talks really spoke to you, you can... Come the second day and, and get like deep dive on that, uh, which I think is a great setup. And so again, yeah, if there was just something you're like, I want to learn more about that. I totally do that. Yeah. Program committee is always running around doing stuff during the conference. What were some of the things that stuck out in your head uh, with the, the track talks?
4: So my, my the one that I was really happy about was getting Kripa Krishnan from Google to talk about disaster recovery testing, mm-hmm. um, because okay. I kind of followed that. Uh, for a while. She's one of the people I had no idea if she would say yes to and and she was totally happy to do it. I don't think she's done many books outside Google and just having someone come and talk about that and and it's it's a crazy thing. They actually plan these scenarios like an earthquake hits Silicon Valley or aliens invade or there's a zombie attack and they have a team that plans out in great detail and researches exactly what would happen and then they don't tell you exactly when it's going to happen but you know it's coming at some point uh, and then they actually do those things like they turn off Cable connections between Mountain View and other places. They cut off the electricity to it, or simulated cutting off the electricity to a data center to try and get them to follow the emergency procedure, um, went to buy diesel, and which ended up with a bunch of Googlers like ended up buying diesel on their personal credit cards you know, for tens of thousands of dollars because they didn't find the emergency requisition procedure. So I mean, the stories are great, but it's also really interesting. That so many organizations have business continuity tests, uh, processes and disaster recovery processes, and they don't test them. Never test because them. Because it's too scary, right? Yeah. Like what would happen if something went wrong? And the fact that Google actually does real things. Right. Uh, you know, in, in a fail-safe way that they can go back it. And, and they cause, like, real problems for people. Yeah. You might not know about it. I, I think that's fascinating and a, and a real example of, of kind of what a high-performance culture looks like.
0: Well, and it's funny, too, because I, I've heard, you know, some of those stories are, like, I mean, they're amazing in terms of, like, the dependencies that you don't know. I remember when they turned them out and data center off, and they were like one machine doing something that couldn't now talk to the network and and I don't want to say it was as simple as DNS because it was not it was something else but the point was like they had some circular dependency that they didn't know about and they never would you know we bring up complex systems all the time and they're changing all the time you can't model that stuff you just can't until you see what happens, poke it and see what happens.
4: Yeah, and you know, you, you just, you don't want people responding in a kind of panicked, unplanned way during an emergency, and the only way to actually get people to create a flow of work and, and kind of develop muscle memory is to, is to practice these things. Yeah. So it's kind of a brave thing to do and kind of a mm-hmm. cool thing to do, and so that, that was a talk I was very happy. And you
0: also, too, you're talking about people like putting diesel on their personal credit cards, you're kind of testing the boundaries of the system, somebody might question could I do that? Or am I going to get like like in an organization like? Am I going to get like? What's the process for that? But if you do it in a test mode, then if there's actually an earthquake, they're not going to work. You know, they did that already. They already put it, and they you know that they they weren't told. Sorry, we're not going to reimburse you for five thousand dollars of diesel. Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I really liked the uh, making great products into great businesses. Um, Andrew uh, Malcolm mm-hmm. uh, gave that talk. He had a lot of really interesting data there that I didn't know from the, the business side of things. And so this is sort of the lean lean startup, lean business types kind of treatment of that topic it was very interesting. He talked a lot about just the life cycle of products. You know, used to be used to be a lot longer than it is. The quintessential example is is your cell phone. They expect that, you know, every two to three years you're gonna be updating your cell phone. And then he was talking he was talking about that like software. Like now we're getting into just the product cycles that are like sub gear. Mm-hmm. And normally, the only thing I can think of historically that even might be close is automobiles. But even then, most people don't buy a new one every year. So just that whole thing of like the way we think about business when those product cycles are so short has to change. And then if you, do, if you make that shift, you're talking about a shift in thinking, then you have to make that shift in like how you develop them, implement them. <laughs> deliver them?
6: Well, it's interesting about the the product life cycle and the fact that most of our companies, not all, but traditionally our companies have been designed for stability. Mm -hmm. And so it's very hard for companies to adjust their thinking, their processes, their structures, policies to support that level of speed and the ability to adapt that quickly. So that's another mindset that I think is really critical to be looking at, is how do we design our organization so that they are not change-resistant so that they are much more flexible.
0: Yeah, he showed a really interesting graph where it was like a graph of when Nintendo released the Wii and it was like their stock price. And it went way up for a little while and he didn't he didn't have the rest of the graph and then he showed it and it plummeted back. So he's like, if you invested money in them back eight years ago, you didn't make anything because they went back down. And then it was funny, he showed a graph of Comcast and it was like Comcast was slow instead he went up. And he, but he was, and he, it was so funny because he was like, yeah, I don't know what Comcast is doing, and I don't know, like, everybody is, like, frustrated with them, but their 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 stock price is, I guess, more resilient than Nintendo's was. And they were, I think they were just talking about, he was talking about the structure of the business, and he was like, whether or not you agree with the tactics, they cracked that nut in a way that Nintendo had a big bang but wasn't able to sustain that sort of big bang. So that was interesting. The other, um, there was a uh, technology is not enough. Barry and uh, Joanne... Their talk. They had some data that was surprising to me. Again, on the business side, about the S and P 500 and the life of company, the like lifespan of companies. So back in the like 50s and 60s, the average lifespan was up in the you know 50 to 60 year range, and now it's down like 10, 15 years.
4: Yeah, it was comparable to the lifespan of a human. Yeah, and now it's much much shorter. Yeah,
0: that was fascinating, and I think a lot of times too, especially at like the employee engagement level, I, I don't know that we always internalize that—that that how it's shifting the structure of the the, the business. Yeah, is shifting. well,
6: and we we always um, well, I think there's a habit of thinking of the failure of a company as a bad thing, but it's not necessarily. You know, it's just this market and this solution has passed its time, yeah. right? So there's nothing inherently wrong with another company. Filling a different niche that has emerged.
0: Yeah, well, it was funny too. The, the, I think it was that talk where they're talking about GE. It's like, where do you think GE makes all their money? And it's like, in actually financial stuff. They they don't make it in jet engines and light bulbs anymore. I mean, they make those things, but that's not where the bulk of their mm-hmm. revenue comes from. And that's like a oh, interesting. <laughs>
5: they didn't think of it that way. I was manning the uh, the process in the in the infrastructure track, and I mean every every person there brought their A-game, they brought, you know, they just did a fabulous job. I I think, uh, I mean, Jeff Patton talked about just the problems with stories, user stories, and just requirements, and just, he always does a fabulous job there, and uh, had some great examples of miscommunication.
0: Um, And he was talking about shifting the way that you do that process. He was like, because a lot of people think the output of that process is the story, and he's like, no, it's actually this sort of derivative thing, it's like, you could almost take a picture of that and that would be more useful than the output of the story itself.
5: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Eric did a fabulous job of of characterizing using the, the OODA loop and examples there, uh, the fast feedback cycles. Um, Diane from Netflix, Dan Marsh from Netflix, always does a great job. She talked about, you know, in this particular, she took a different tact rather than explaining uh, so much about their technology or their platform. She actually took a, an, an example of how she's introducing change at Netflix. and. Um, just kind of the, the dynamics of that, which was an interesting case study. You normally hear a lot about their platforms and their tooling and, and, and their technology. You want to talk about a uniform. and, and you always get yeah it. And, and and this one was about how, how I introduced actually introduced change at Netflix. Right. And it's not as ideal as you might think. Uh, right? uh, it's not his, I, <laughs> Yeah. I always think that
4: the, the, the difference between unicorns and and the horses is just that the unicorns have better PR. I don't think, you know, if you've worked in these companies that claim to be, you know, the best, that they all have real problems. They, they all have dirty really laundry, yeah.
6: Well, and, and uh, you know, the thing that happens often, and we've seen this happen with lean too, is that you know, Toyota spent many years working out lean and then people think they can just adopt that end point but they don't look at all the adaptations that happened every step of the way and how things were formed around the unique context and problems and issues that that company was having. So one of my favorite quotes from this conference was um, Caitlin and JB from Nordstrom were talking about their countermeasures. You know, They didn't say, this is what you should do. They said, these are our countermeasures for the problems we were experiencing and you need to find your own countermeasures. Yeah.
4: Yeah, I, I personally think that all methodologies are just post hoc rationalizations of a set of countermeasures that happen to work in a particular s- circumstance.
6: That's a, a nice fancy way that's to say it. Yeah.
4: <laughs> well, it's funny. It's funny
0: you mentioned that Gary Groover spoke, and I was actually talking with him at the, the evening party. And uh, you know, I was saying, you know, the, the, the stuff that uh, you know. A lot of times, people say, "Oh, I, I can't do continuous delivery because of blah." And, laws some reason he's like i did it with printer firmware yeah you can do it right but no so what was funny though is i was like you know tell me more about that story and everything and so we were chatting and and he said something really funny he was like you know we did it like we did it and it's amazing but we when we were doing it we just did it because no one told us we couldn't it, it and so this it's it's the funny that the whole unicorn thing it's like we sort of like Yes, put the put the horn on the horse and, and you know get the sparkly out and all that kind of stuff and dress them up sort of as unicorns. But a lot of times it's just I didn't know that I couldn't do it and I had a team that didn't know they could couldn't do it and they did it.
6: Or I had a problem solve and this is how we solved it and we didn't name it. I yeah, mean, you know, naming something uh, in some ways uh, is is very powerful, but in other ways it makes it sort of magic.
4: Uh, and, and they didn't, I mean, the, the thing I love about, I mean, there's many things I love about HP, LaserJet Firmware, um, but one of them is they didn't set out to adopt Agile, they didn't set out to adopt, they didn't read books, they didn't hire, and, you know, they independently invented continuous delivery, and they independently invented the improvement category, which are two of my, you know, obviously things that I tend to bang on about quite a lot, uh, and they did we it have just some because, on those yeah, I, I, I have some emotions <laughs> I need to get out, and uh, th- they they just wanted to get better at what they were doing. They had a goal which was an eight times improvement in the amount of time they were spending on value added work and they knew it was going to take them a long time to get there and they just worked out how they could get a little bit better each month and specified that and then they left it to the teams to work out how to do it. And and it was just having a culture where it's like, well, we you know, we just need to get better. Let's let's focus on that and, and see how we can do it, rather than we are going to implement our trial. Well With.
6: I love that though. We're gonna get a little better every month. Rather than, we're going to take this wonderful promise, this silver bullet that will solve all our problems immediately. Yeah.
4: There's no diet pills. You.
6: Dang it, really? So annoying!
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, and you were talking about how important employee engagement is. Like, there's no better way to engage your employees and say, we, we want to get better. We want you to want to get better. And we want to empower you to do that. So it's not like you can just go to work and type on a keyboard kind of mindlessly because the whole thing is, this is what we want to do. We want you to want well, to do that too. I would uh,
6: refine that a little bit to say we all have to get a little better. Yeah, yeah. Because if it's just the manager saying we want you to get better, that's not very engaging. It's true. That's sucky. Yeah. <laughs>
0: it sort of also implies that, uh, yeah, that we're we're like at the uh, the high state, right? <laughs> that yes, some people
6: are like at the all the problems all, are you people over there? Yeah, which yeah, is yeah. very, very seldom the case. Yes, yeah. yeah,
5: so it's, it's normally the other way around. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I. Uh, I wanted to highlight just one other, t- I think, well personally for me I think the highlight of the, the, the process and infrastructure track was Sam uh, Newman's talk on microservices. Mm-hmm. I mean... And he had a tough audience, uh, he had Adrian <laughs> Cockcroft yeah. and yeah. Diane Marsh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and they well, had something about microservices, a few things. Yeah, yeah, a yeah. things, things. Yeah. Um, but I just, I, you know, he did a wonderful job at, at describing them and, and, and talking about how you would deploy, even deploying them, the hosting models and everything. But I think the most significant statement that he said really was, and this is my own experience, too, uh, in just talking with other other folks and other companies and, and, you know, giving them little bits of advice. And that's a lot of companies, when they go to, you know, adopt Agile or even continuous delivery or any of these kinds of things, right, I mean, if that's their objective, most of the time what they really end up with is they don't really have a process problem. They have an architectural problem. That's really where it... it Kind of the rubber hits the road where they realize I can't get really any better with just more process fixes. I can't really do continuous delivery until I change my actual the system that's uh, that's being built. And so um, I, I think I think what Sam had was really so, some some nice uh, things about you know how they could approach that, how they could refactor, etc.
0: I'm sure, Jez, you've run into this a lot too, where you're talking about sort of how to implement continuous delivery or something like that, and from an engineering standpoint, it's really, really hard because the assumption is you can't change the architecture. And once you say, no, no, we, we can actually explore how do we change the architecture okay. to support it, then, then you get a whole new kind of trying to look at the problem and a mindset to sort of tackle it.
4: That's right, you know, and a lot of it comes back to Conway's law and working out how to exploit Conway's law and, and not to try and resist Conway's law, Yeah, uh, and, and then that leads into the organizational side of things as yes. well. So all that has to be in scope. Yeah. Um, and there's, you know, the other thing is there's incremental ways to do that. You know, the HP LaserJet rewrote their system from scratch based on the architectural principles that enable continuous delivery, but you don't have to do it that way. You can do it in an incremental way, which is what Amazon did between 2001 and 2005. So you can blow up the world or not blow up in the world. Right, exactly. And, and then Netflix did the same thing in two years just to prove how much better they were. So, <laughs> so you talked at the beginning about things that were different this year from last year. Um, the one thing that was visibly different and several people commented to us on was the fact that there was more women in the audience this time, there was more women uh, attendees this time, uh, which is the, the, the cool thing, I think, from my point of view, that, that we managed to achieve. We actually set out... So last year we had uh, 40% women speakers. This year we actually managed 50% women speakers. And I would love to know how we ended up having more women in the audience, but it did feel noticeably different, and several people commented on it.
6: Well, this is one of my metrics for a great conference, is do I have to stand in line in the restroom? And I did. Because... When I started going to technical conferences, low those many years ago, I never had to stand in line because I was often one of a handful of women there.
0: So that so was I'm, great.
6: I was happy to see that too.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you called that out because I didn't, I didn't consciously notice that. But now that you pointed out, I'm like, yeah, that was true. And what was interesting to me is, that, you know, a lot of times this is a problem, you know, in the industry that we're, we're tackling and uh, you know, tried to tackle, and I know that this is something that's close to your heart, Jazz, and, and so we we actually talked about this last year. We, last year, yeah, and it's so it's interesting that it's almost more than just an anecdote, that actually if you reflect in the speakers the, the type of you know, the audience will, will uh, not match, if you but you build
4: it. You know. They will come. Yeah. You know, kind <laughs> of thing. Well, I, I think of it as modeling, right? You model yeah, behavior yeah. that you want to see. Exactly. Yeah, uh, so I, I'm still really interested to find out the mechanics of how it happened because it definitely did happen. And I would like to, you know, be able to reproduce that in some way. But I mean, I was talking to Gita about this, uh, our conference, uh, our lead conference producer, and uh, she thinks that, she saw a lot of tweeting, and Nile as well saw a lot of tweeting from the female speakers, and, you know, we think that may
5: have been part of the story.
6: Or a word could have gotten out from last year.
5: Right, word of mouth.
6: Yeah. Well, yeah,
5: I, there's one other aspect of the conference, though, that I think that, per, at least from my point of view, I don't know, we, we we need a maybe message in a different way or a better way, but there were many people in the audience, especially after the keynotes and, and other things, where they realized I I would venture to say that still the bulk of the audience is engineers, but they, after certain talks, they're like, "Uh, I made a mistake. I should have brought my product person with me. I should have Mm -hmm. brought my UX person with me. I should have brought my tester with me. And I think, you know, the conference is designed to be multidisciplinary. We've got everything from leaders all through all those disciplines all the way through. And so we need to get a better message out and getting people to bring a much more cross-functional
0: I will call this out because I I just always liked this this and you had this last year. The the poster says continuous design, data and delivery. Yeah. And so it's not the the data and design part, you know, you're Mr. Continuous Delivery, but it's to your point, it's all those things to make it work. So Full Con Three O, (laughs) yes, happening. (laughs) Putting that all together. We haven't gone that far yet. (laughs) But for those that missed it this year, yes. I think we would love to.
4: Yeah, we have. I mean, give I think us a we all little.
6: It's give us a little time to rest from this one. Yeah. Yes, you got to <laughs> decompress.
0: You got to get the data from the, the the feedback and all that stuff. Yeah? Yes. All right. Well, Jez, John, Esther, thanks so much for joining My us. Pleasure. Thanks for having us. Thanks. And we'll be back in a moment here on the ship shop. Welcome back to The Ship Show. I'm your host, Paul Reed. So joining us for the end segment this evening, doing something a little special uh, this episode. Joining me is Gene Kim, friend of the podcast. Welcome back to The Ship Show, Gene.
2: Oh, man, it's great being here again, and thanks for making this possible.
0: Yeah, now, uh, I think everybody knows who you are, but in case people don't, you are one of the authors of uh, The Phoenix Project, a novel about IT DevOps and helping your business win, and the uh, founder and former CTO of Tripwire. And, you know, we spent the main segment talking with some program committee members from Float, Con, and you were there. We had a chance to chat briefly. FlowCon was, was just great.
2: Uh, absolutely. And, I, you know, uh, I'm a big fan of anything Jez Humble does. But, you know, to, for him to assemble such a great group of experts was phenomenal. And the high point for me was meeting Don Reinerson, who is one of my heroes. And, you know, listening to him is always like listening to a Paul Feynman lecture. I mean, yes. It is challenging. I understand maybe 40% of what he said, but it is so gratifying and awesome.
0: <laughs> well, it's one of those things I think, well, he's known for the, the product design book, his product design book, and and I, I'm trying to remember, it's like people always call it, it's like the, the purple book with the, the waterfall or whatever on it, right? <laughs> right, yeah, right, right, I mean, it's, it's one of those, you know, people always talk about, like, the Gang of Four book, it's like, if you're in that space, you know Reinhardt's book because it's like the waterfall book, but I didn't know that he lectured at Caltech, and that was... <laughs>
2: <laughs> nor did i yeah in fact yeah. Uh, i would say uh his book really stands out it has more math symbols than yes. you know, your typical product uh design book yeah yeah <laughs>
0: Well, so we wanted to have you on the podcast, so FlowCon wrapped up last week, but you are working on another conference that's going to be later in October. It's uh, actually October 21st through the 23rd uh, in San Francisco. It's the DevOps Enterprise Conference. Tell us a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, you know, I've uh, been fortunate enough to uh, have Jez Humble help me with this conference as well, just uh, like I was able to help with the program committee for FlowCon last year. And, And really, the goal of the DevOps Enterprise Conference is to create an alternate narrative Narrative of the DevOps experience, but not for the unicorns, which I think are the population that often shows up at Velocity and DevOps days. Instead, these are the larger, more complex enterprises that have a much more difficult time bootstrapping DevOps a- efforts. And I think what has really been the motivation to do this is that when you look at the stories that are being put out there, whether it's at ChefConf or PuppetConf, you know, to some extent Velocity, you know, to meet the leaders who are driving and enabling these transformations, I mean, I found that these were some of the most courageous tales of transformations where they are having to overcome low trust command and control systems, bureaucracies that are trying to suck the life out of you know everybody's will to live, and they're essentially the immune system is out to get them. And and so And it, they, they
0: persevered and were able to come through. It is
2: an amazing set of stories. Yeah, so there's fifty two speakers really telling their tales of DevOps transformations. And I think it's a it's a different narrative, even though I think we're all in the same community of practice, it is a qualitatively different narrative than uh, what you would find at an Etsy Google and Amazon, the Twitter, and so forth.
0: Well, you look at the list of speakers; it's it just uh, a cornucopia of household names. You know, GE, Walt Disney, Macy's. I saw the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services is in there. That's a that's an interesting one. Target, Nordstrom. I mean, Raytheon. It's it's just all over the map of uh, large organizations. Ticketmaster, people doing amazing things in sort of complex, as you said, complex uh, environments.
2: Right. In fact, you know, in fact, the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. That's actually a an agency underneath the Department of Homeland Security. So, you know, if you can do it there, and if you can do it at Ticketmaster and, you know, for uh, CSG, the largest bill printing company at Disney, it really, and if they're doing this for, like, the COBOL mainframe apps, I mean... <laughs> for J2EE apps. you know Docker for, uh, Docker for COBOL. Oh, it's amazing. So it's just, you know, I think uh, those tales are just as heroic and courageous as uh, those that we would hear about at a Velocity keynote. And so, you know, I think the, the goal of the conference is to really showcase them. And in my ideal, I think there's a community of practice here that is, you know, shaping here to show that DevOps is not just for the unicorns, but for the horses as well. And we all know that horses and unicorns are the same species, at least in the same genus, at least. Right. <laughs> but, uh, you know, as You know, one of the things I loved about your skeptic guide to continuous delivery that you did. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that is a classic enterprise, right? That's a, an application that's been around for eight years in my right. Investment. There's an IT department, you know, it's inside the IT department. There's a dev and a QA silo and there's an ops silo. And this person is having to recreate the DevOps tribe from nothing. And so I think that's really a tale very similar to, I think, what's going to be told at the DevOps Enterprise Conference.
0: Yeah, and well, so that was part of the uh, – there was a five-part series that I did with them, and we'll put a link in the show notes that got – I mean, the whole thing was called The Skeptic's Guide to Continuous Delivery. And I actually kind of wanted to ask you about that because, you know, we were talking before, and we were actually talking at FlowCon about the fact that skepticism sort of abounds when it comes comes to sort of the concepts of DevOps and enterprise. And I, I what's interesting about this is you kind of have it on the enterprise side. There's a lot of companies that have been around for a long time, have established ways of doing things. And I think a lot of times we forget that there are reasons why they do things those ways. It's not like it's just kind of poof and one was one day a certain way, right? I mean there's there's things that happen to those companies and they have processes and that sort of thing. So when they hear a lot of these you know unicorn stories as as you put it, there's a lot of I think skepticism there. And then also too I think and then the DevOps community side, a lot of times you hear people saying, oh, well, they're just a stodgy enterprise or, you know, it's, <laughs> it's whatever, right? And so I'm curious, you are really, with this conference, sort of bringing those two groups together and being like, guys, hug it out. And I'm, I'm curious, like, w- what that was like, bringing two groups that are kind of a little skeptical and need a little kind of push to sort of embrace, as it were.
2: That's been one of the unexpected surprises of this part of the journey, right? Because, I mean, the, what is the goal? The goal is to broaden the church tent of DevOps. DevOps beyond just the unicorns to you know where ninety-nine percent of IT practitioners live. And let's not call them IT practitioners, the technology practitioners just like us. Right. Uh, And it's one of the surprises was that uh, maybe maybe this is my naivete, but in DevOps so much of what we talk about is empathy and inclusiveness. And so how I was a little bit surprised how we could be inclusive of not to maybe use some politically charged language, the ninety nine percent, right? I mean if we are the one percenters in the unicorns, well then you know, shouldn't we have more empathy and compassion for the people who don't have that culture of yeah. belief system yet. And so...
0: Uh, well, you know, that's very true. I mean, we, we talk the talk about empathy, but this is really a, a walk the walk I think, for our community. And then putting together, I mean, like when we were talking about all of those speakers, I think there's probably someone in the lineup of speakers that somebody working in an enterprise can pattern match stories that will resonate with them. So maybe there's a way to sort of chip away at some of the skepticism there that if GE can do it and be very successful or, or Macy's or some of the, you know, target, like if they're making it work, like that, that, that can work for me too.
2: Oh, absolutely. In fact, I mean, as we talk about the kind of the adoption curve, you know, the you know, unicorns are probably the innovators and, you know, maybe the early adopters. You know, to get to the early majority, you know, we need those proof points. People to raise their hand and say, we are a stodgy horse, too, and look what we have done. And I think the other thing that excites me so much is that, you know, we found through the DevOps survey of practice that Jen's humble and I worked on with Puppet Labs. The high performers, they have not only great IT performance, deployment frequency, lead time, change success rate, mean time repair. Right they have phenomenal organizational performance. They are twice as likely to exceed profitability, market share, and productivity goals. And we know that if you look at those organizations who provide a stock ticker symbol, the high performers had 50% higher market cap growth from low performers. So I think these people who are standing up and sharing their DevOps story, they are going to be winning in the marketplace at the expense of the lower performers. So it's kind of a a wonderful thing to be in the early parts of this movement, isn't it? Well, that's
0: certainly something that makes people sit up and take note when you uh, start mentioning financial performance and stock performance.
2: Yeah, crazy as it sounds, I mean, the evidence that it's there, right? (laughs) Yeah, well, funny
0: too, yeah, it's one of those things that I think is anecdotal. It doesn't sound crazy at all to people that are in it, but I think you need to have the data, and I know that with the DevOps yearly survey that that you had worked on, that was one of the things that you were... you and Nicole, too, uh, I was fortunate to introduce all of you, actually, Velocity Santa Clara, and uh, we had some really interesting conversations that she's putting that data together.
2: Oh, yeah. In fact, how fun is it that we get to surround ourselves with some of the best practitioners yeah. and thinkers in the space.
0: She'll be there, too. She'll be at DevOps Enterprise, won't Yes,
2: in fact, uh, yeah. we are, if all goes well, we'll actually be preparing a uh, custom benchmark just for enterprise companies uh, awesome. so that we can actually uh, tighten the lens on large... Organizations with ten thousand plus employees, and you know, hopefully increase our understanding of what predicts performance.
0: So let me ask one last thing, because you linked to me to something which was fascinating. You had a, a post that was a word cloud of the various speakers, attendees, and the the CFP submissions. And I think when you you know I love word clouds because you kind of see things that you wouldn't normally see in with other data presentation formats. And uh, this post was was very interesting with the word clouds that came out of it.
2: Yeah, there were two surprises for me. One was just a seniority of the speakers and attendees. I mean, they are, the title that showed up the most was directors, followed by Mm -hmm. chief architects and Mm -hmm. uh, managers, VPs. So I think it's a the seniority of the constituency assembling there is uh, actually startling and astounding. And, Sounds like the know,
0: grassroots efforts are actually reaching. The grass is getting very tall.
2: Right. Right. So we're winning. Right. I mean, this, yeah. this is an indication that you know uh, the movement is working. Uh, and the other uh, surprise was that if you look at the speakers versus attendees. The speakers typically come from operations, then architecture and development. But attendees, uh, they're primarily they're coming from development, architecture, and operations. It's like reversed.
0: <laughs> so that's really that's sort of another embracing of two groups that have traditionally maybe been a little skeptical of each other. Yeah, and and what's
2: interesting to me is that I would have expected at least an attendee should meet the speaker. In other words, the, the profile of the attendee should meet the speaker. So my concern is that there aren't enough operations people showing up. So if uh, operations lead aren't leading these movements, then they're going to be disintermediated and bypassed by development and architecture. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, this is not a, a threat, uh, but it is, I think, a, a vulnerability that, you know, as an that's, operations constituency, we need to... Well, it's, be,
0: how, bio- it's how biological systems work, right? <laughs> or the internet, right? If it's damaged route right around it. You're
2: right. You're right. The survival instinct is so strong. Mm-hmm. As much as we love our ops brethren and uh, peers, if they don't get on board, then we have to go around them. Yeah, that's that's one possible narrative, and I, I, that's something I hope doesn't happen.
0: Yeah, definitely. Well, So DevOps Enterprise, it is October 21st through the 23rd. Uh, in San Francisco, and you can register at devopsenterprise.io.
2: Yes, and uh, I'll send a uh, link to that and a promotion code for all our friends and family.
0: That coupon code, that is SHIPSHOW20, the word Ship SHIPSHOW20. Yeah, one one word and two zero, and we'll put, again, a link to that in the show notes. If you want to use that coupon code as soon as possible. It will be expiring on the 18th, uh, so you have one week to uh, register with that coupon. Gene, pleasure as always, and you come back and and do a main segment with us again real
2: soon, right? Oh, awesome! Whenever you want, at your oh. beck and call.
0: All right, thank you, sir. We'll uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, sir. All right, so definitely, yes, if you're looking for uh, enterprise DevOps, either learning how the, the big enterprises do it or trying to get more just kind of sort of knowledge on, on how to tackle that problem within a larger enterprise, certainly check that out. And, of course, speaking of conferences, upcoming we've got uh, Velocity New York. Uh, that is uh, the fifteenth September 15th to the 17th, obviously, in New York. And then upcoming DevOps Days, we'll do a quick shout-out because there's a bunch of them. Belgium, Berlin, Chicago, Helsinki, New York, Toronto, Vancouver, Warsaw, Tel Aviv, DevOps Days, upcoming within the next few months. So if you are in the neighborhood of any of those cities, be sure and check those out. And also back across uh, back across the continent uh, in San Francisco, Puppet PuppetConf is coming up. We will actually be at PuppetConf, so uh, check that out if, if you're in San Francisco and uh, doing the puppet stuffs. And isn't reInvent going on? Yeah, oh right, reInvent is going on. That's uh, November, yes? Oh, November 11th through 14th. And that's in Vegas, right?
3: That's in Vegas.
0: But So you can go, if you're going to reInvent, you can go, but you can't tell us about it.
3: I can't? Oh, because it stays in Vegas, right.
0: <laughs> ah, see what I did there? <laughs> so, uh, from back in San Francisco, finally again, this is Paul Reed signing off.
1: It's San Diego, this is Yusuf signing off.
0: In Cambridge, this is EJ signing off. And we will see you all in a couple of weeks.